Hello, and again, welcome to BitDev. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Peter Cazadoy. Thank you. Uh, so one, thank you for saying your name out loud so that people know how to pronounce it. But also, thank you for doing this with me. <laughs> of course. Um, so first of all, as always, um, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, we already covered the name part. Everyone pronounces my last name incorrectly. Uh, it's Kazadoy. I get Kode, Kadoze, Kadozi. Ka- I've had I've had people say it backwards. I don't really. I mean, it's not that hard. Um, <laughs> and so uh, you know, I'm sort of a self-described Renaissance man because I'm technically an entrepreneur. I start and grow companies. Um, but every time I say that, I think people in the back of their minds are like, oh, that means he's broke. Mm, poor guy. <laughs> um, yeah, I've grown uh, you know, my platform company. I grew that to the multi-million dollar level. Uh, we had offices in, across the US and here in the US and in Canada. Uh, got on the Inc. 5000 list uh, of fastest growing companies in the US for a couple of years in a row. And then branched out and did other projects because I have entrepreneurial ADHD. So uh, I'm involved in real estate. My business partner at the agency and I have a tech launch. Um, and I do now a tremendous amount of coaching and consulting for other entrepreneurs, helping them understand how to even build a seven or eight figure business and how to build more importantly, a lifestyle around that business. Because so often entrepreneurs get caught up in, you know, what the world tells them looks, you know, success looks like, or they build, you know, they try to build a big company on, you know, I I like it to a skyscraper. They're trying to build a skyscraper on the foundation of a two family home and then wondering why that doesn't work. Right. So, you know, I, I love doing all that kind of deep work with folks and helping them understand, uh, you know, to my book topic about honesty, how their own self-limiting bullshit is getting in the way of them building a business, which Santiago is the case all the time. You know, 99% of business problems are personal problems in disguise, which is something I never would have figured out or believed if you had told it to me, I had to experience it and meet the brick wall of humility many times to even figure it out myself. Um, so since then I've branched out and my big project this year coming out in exactly a month from right now is my new book, Honest to Greatness, How Today's Greatest Leaders Use Brutal Honesty to Achieve Massive Success, which was just endorsed by Barbara Corcoran. Very exciting. So yeah. uh, looking forward to that coming live. Sweet. Um, okay. Well, one thing that is kind of unrelated to the things that you just said, I read your website bio. You started in figure skating? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I was a figure skater. I was a very competitive figure skater as a child. Um, I, I, my, bless my parents, they put me into everything when I was a kid. Uh, I was a figure skater. I'm actually as good of a skier as I am a, a figure skater. Uh, we were in musical theater. We were in swimming classes. Like, yeah, yeah. we could do it. We could do it. Um, which was fantastic because it gave me the ability to try a bunch of things, um, have a lot of different social groups, which you know, looking back on it, I can see why that was important. I wasn't always particularly popular in school and it was less of a big deal because I had these other social groups that I was a part of. I could be popular over here and if I wasn't there. And I think looking back, that that was an important part of my childhood. Um, but I was a very serious figure skater. I, mean, I, at, you know, I tell the story at 17, I knew two things to be true. The first is I was going to the Olympics as a figure skater. You know, I, was, I was very serious about it. I, you know, trained for almost two decades. Um, and the other thing I was sure of is that I was going to Harvard as an undergrad. You know, I, several of my family members had gone to Harvard. And I grew up south of Boston. There was no other college but Harvard. <laughs> right? I just didn't even look past it. Um, and by 18, 
sadly, I had to have my own, you know, confrontation of, of, of honesty when uh, it was clear I was not going to make the Olympics. I just wasn't good enough. Um, I could not hold my nerves together for one reason or another. Um, mind you, now I do like a lot of keynote talks and presentations and stuff like that. But I will tell you that after you fall on your ass alone on the cold ice in front of 2000 people, nothing is difficult after that. Like it all gets easier. Um, but so, you know, that, that was, you know, failure. Number one, I realized at 18 and number two was, um, you know, I applied to Harvard, Harvard sent me a nice letter back saying, um, thank you, but no, thank you. You know, please don't, don't contact us again. Um, so that was, uh, that was, you know, the first time I had to really confront, um, that I was derailed from the life I always thought I would live. Um, you know, I've learned that that term is cognitive dissonance. I was so convinced that this is what life was going to look like. And then when, when it didn't happen, I, I think I spent, I know I spent a lot of years sort of assuming a second best scenario. Like, well, I'm not going to be um, number one kick-ass Peter. It looks like I'm going to be uh, you know, second place Peter. Awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the good news, Santiago, is those fueled my company because I had these big chips on my shoulder. Yeah. And then in a way, it made me want to prove uh, to you know, others, and especially, of course, to myself, that um, you know that I could reach some pinnacle of of success, however I defined it at the time. So, it, you know, again, looking back, hindsight, wonderful gift. Um, I can see that the, those things have now defined, in a beneficial way, you know, who who I am and who I've become. Right. Yeah. So, how do you go from there into starting businesses, starting in marketing? Why yeah. Why go from this thing to that thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, life, right? One point I love to make when I'm speaking to entrepreneur groups, I just did a, a, a presentation a couple of weeks ago to an entrepreneur conference. And the one, the first thing I opened with was I need you all to understand the role that luck plays in life. Now we can debate, we can make our own luck or can we put ourselves in position to be lucky? Yes. I believe all those things are true, but I also think no, no one can discount the right place and the right time and the right people, the power that that has over us. And that, by the way, we have no control over, right? So I'm in, uh, I'm an undergrad, I ended up at Brandeis uh, outside of Boston. And I'm every single elective class I can take, I'm at the business school because I just, I, don't know, I just loved business. It made mm-hmm. sense to me. I was like, oh, this is how the world works. You know, I want to understand it better. Um, and at the time I was working for my now business partner who at the time owned retail figure skating stores. Mm. Um, cause again, you know, we knew the industry well, so I'd worked in it, you know, as a teenager, um, my parents were like, Hey, yeah, we're going to support you in all this stuff, by the way, go, go get a job, you bum. Um, and so <laughs> I did, it was fine. Um, so as I'm taking all these business classes, I'm like, you know, we're learning about all this awesome stuff. Uh, you're, this industry is the perfect kind of niche industry. There are no big players. You know, let's like expand, you know, nationwide and whatever. And he was like, yeah, sounds great. Move, move to Connecticut and let's do that. Um, now, you know, talk about luck or misluck and timing. Uh, turns out that as I graduate, it's 2008 and you know what happened then and credit markets dry up and inventories shrink back and we don't have the freedom and flexibility that we had. So being the two geniuses that we are, we said to ourselves, all right, well, we've got these figure skating stores. We need to drum up business, obviously. Uh, what's the best, clearest, most obvious way to do that? I know. Um, create a reality television show about figure skating. That was our, huh. that was our logical idea. Yeah. Um, so we put together teams of you know, video producers, lighting people and all that venue, and we shoot this pilot for a reality 
television show about figure skating because we saw Dancing with the Stars and we were like, mm-hmm. well, nobody gives a shit about ballroom dancing. What the hell? <laughs> uh, meanwhile, figure skating, the most watched Olympic sport at every Winter Olympics by far. So we're like, there's a market for this. Um, by the way, you do not have to shoot a pilot to go pitch a TV show. That, we have <laughs> no idea why we did that. Um, and as we're pitching, producers are like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I don't think anybody cares about figure skating though. And we're like, ballroom dancing? Are you kidding? Anyway. Right. So... Uh, we go tens of thousands of dollars into debt producing this pilot. And then we're like, okay, well, that, that, that didn't work. It probably wasn't that smart. Maybe we should like be real entrepreneurs and go like make money, you know, do something and like make it make, you know, a dollar or two. So while we had these teams pulled together, we said, let's go pitch video production work. Um, and so we, Santiago, literally, like when I say we started at the bottom, we started at the bottom. We started shooting $800 television commercials for local car dealers, which is mm-hmm. exactly as, as glamorous as it sounds. Um, and literally we bounced along the bottom for years, you know, and by year four, we had gotten up to maybe like 300, 350,000 revenue. Um, and we're doing all this video production work. I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, if, if we could only get more of these $800 television commercials, like we'd be rich. Well, apparently, mm-hmm. even though I was taking business classes, I didn't take math classes. So like, I didn't pause to figure out, like, that's actually a really stupid idea. And, <laughs> you know, what kind of business would that be, right? It doesn't even make sense. Talk about foundation, as I said earlier. This is how I learned all this stuff, by the way, the hard way, by doing stupid shit. So right. we were getting hired by other agencies to do their video production work. And quickly, we realized that marketing agencies are run by a lot of dum-dums. I mean, people just the strategies are bad. They didn't care about clients. They would overcharge. They would blow through deadlines. We were like, we can do that better. Right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. classic entrepreneur, we could do that. Right. Um, the good thing about, we can do that is, you know, it, it, it's good to have that ego. That's what helps us business owners, you know, get going. The bad thing is we actually have to like go out and prove it. Right. So overnight we're like, well, we're not video production anymore. We're a full service marketing agency. Change the name. That's who we are. <laughs> and at the time we were doing TV commercials uh, actually web videos, I'm sorry, for a local college, shooting their student, you know, testimonials, stuff like that. And one day the VP of marketing calls, she says, uh, you know, actually we're going to hire a full service agency now. Um, it's like, you know, over a million dollar account, big deal. She's like, you know, I like you guys. Do you want to come in and pitch? You know, do you have the, the resources and the team to do this? So we kind of put that on pause and we were like, all right, well, um, okay, do we have like copywriters? No. Uh, do we have graphic designers? Nope, don't have that. Media people to handle the media? Nope, don't have media people. Account? Do we have an account man? Nope, doesn't have, no account managers. Don't have any of those things um, that we knew we needed. So we, we got back on the phone. We're like, yeah, absolutely. We want to pitch. We've got everything <laughs> you need. We'll be there. Just give us the time. We're good to go. so, uh, so we're at the pitch. And um, at the end of the presentation, we show this video of all their students talking about the college and their experience and how they saw, uh, you know, that particular organization. And using that, we reveal our our tagline. It's going to be the cornerstone of the whole campaign. And the room goes silent. And the president just like drops her head and is looking at the presentation. And it's one of those boardrooms where like, no one's opinion matters except the leader. Like they're all looking at her like, oh, what is she going to say? Because whatever she says, I'll say, you know, boardroom bullshit. We'll get into that later. Um, And... Room goes quiet. I'm looking around for the exits. I'm like, all right, I need a fucking exit plan here. Um, and she she snaps back up a couple moments later and says, where did you get this? I've been looking for this for years. And I was tempted to say, well, because we're the biggest bunch of geniuses you've ever met. That's why. But that would have been dishonest. That wasn't the case. Sure. Um, we said, we didn't come up with this. Your students came up with this. Because 
if we're going to be honest about whose opinion matters most, it's theirs. You know, they're the right. ones who need to tell you who you are, um, which is a theme that, you know, I've carried forward and we've worked in a lot of clients, you know, uh, helping them understand that should be obvious. It's not. Um, and we use that. So we won that pitch, won that client. We use that as a cornerstone of, of more clients. And from there, we, we've, gosh, we've worked with startups to the Fortune 500 and even Warren Buffett himself. I accidentally served as Warren Buffett's bodyguard once. That's another story. Um, but yeah, it's been, been a wild ride and, and one with many pivots and many lessons and many downfalls and defeats. Trust me. Sure. Um, so then at what point do you start kind of figuring out the flow and you have that upward motion that has kind of always been the goal yeah. and, and how do you kind of figure out that goal or um, I don't, and gosh, the I don't way know. of I'll, getting it? I'll let you know when I figure it out, Santiago. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, we, we did something, you know, talk about serendipity and luck, right? And I, mm-hmm. you know, originally my, my team hated when I would talk about this, but we grew a multi-million dollar operation through uh, referrals, through warm networking, through, you know, mothers, daughters, uh, dogs, aunts, nephews, so-and-so, you know, um, which was wonderful. And by the way, it taught me that that is no way to build a multimillion dollar business because it's too unpredictable. So, you know, fast forward to a few years later, uh, we were doing well overnight, a million dollar client, uh, decides they don't want to work with an agency anymore. They're going to bring it in house. We lost a million dollars in revenue overnight and Mm -hmm. had to do our first layoff. And that was like devastating. Yeah. Um, and, and we didn't have, you know, a predictable sales pipeline to back it up. You know, we had to learn. Now I have, I could tell you, I have 63 leads in the pipeline because we've built a system around it finally. Um, but, you know, it, we didn't talk about the things you don't know, you know, blindsides, biases, right? Ego. Oh, yeah. we got this. We didn't have this. I didn't have this. Um, <clears throat> but interestingly, what that taught me, Santiago, is that, I always thought success looked like offices and employees and clients around the world and just like, you know, big, better stuff, right? Uh, turns out I hated all of that. I don't even like <laughs> managing big teams of people. Like, I'm, I, turns out I'd much rather just like sit in my beach house on my laptop with no pants on and just like do my job. Um, and, you know, talk to people over Zoom. Like, this is like, I love this, right? All yeah, about great. the work. <laughs> Good to know about me, but... I had to struggle through like, wait a second, but, but I had success. This is what success looks like, isn't it? Like, why, why isn't this making me happy? And what I wish for myself was that someone could have told me that in my mid-20s and that I would have believed them. But sadly, Santiago, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have believed you even if he had told me. Like, Peter, you're not actually going to like, it's not what success means because it's a different thing. I would have been like, yeah, well, fuck you. Like, I, what are you talking <laughs> about? You know, look at, you know, these Fortune 500 companies. Isn't that awesome? And those CEOs are so cool. You couldn't pay me to go run a company like that. They don't own their schedule. I know that now, right? Wisdom, mm-hmm. honesty, brutal honesty. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, well, yeah. So what are the usual trends that you find in companies that you're consulting and it's like, man, I, it feels like every day I'm saying the same thing to every different company. Yeah. Sadly. And, and again, this is something that I wish, uh, Brandeis had prepared me for. I actually, after I built a million dollar company went back to Columbia, uh, to get an MBA. Fantastic, by the way, amazing how stupid I was and how much I learned and how incredible my classmates are, but neither at Brandeis nor at Columbia did any 
business professor prepare me for what I found in the boardrooms of businesses? Mm -hmm. Because while we studied the logic and sense of finance and spreadsheets and marketing programs and all this stuff, right? It's all very logical, drops down to the bottom line, literally. No one prepared me for the fact that the business world does not operate that way. It yeah. operates on ego and bias and disillusionment and politics and infighting. Yeah. <laughs> so for years, uh, and, and by the way, I've, I thought I was crazy until I went to Columbia and we studied, of course, we studied Warren Buffett because Warren Buffett went to Columbia too. And we learned about value investing and all the things he pioneered. Not, not that he pioneered, but he made it you know, famous and palatable to the masses. Um, turns out he has a name for this. It's called the institutional imperative. He too mm -hmm. describes in one of his books how he came out of Columbia and was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then started, you know, engaging in all these boardrooms. And he was like, the hell is this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he developed a name for it called the institutional imperative, which is the idea that the institution just gets sort of catapulted forward in a completely illogical way by people that can't get their heads out of their own asses. And like, I, I, that was great for me because I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. And what would happen, Santiago, is we'd, we'd engage with the these clients, you know, startups, the fortune 500. In fact, the bigger ones are, are sometimes the worst. Mm -hmm. And some of them, we would give love, care, attention, strategy, and they would just crush it. They'd get like a five, six times ROI in their spend with us. They'd stay with us for years. It was just like fantastic. Others, same love, care, attention, strategy, and they would blow up in the launch pad. I mean, they could not get out of their own way to save their lives. Hmm. And we just descend into politics and infighting and ego and irrationalism, right? And I couldn't figure it out. It pissed me off. And I chalked it up to stupidity. I was like, these guys, these people are a bunch of morons. Um, that was my own stupidity. That's not true. You know, any executive that becomes an executive has to be smart. What I now know to be true, and of course, you know, what do I know, right? What I now believe is true, and I write about this in my book and in my TEDx talk, is that executives grow to be fundamentally dishonest. And I don't mean that in they're like outright trying to mislead people. What I mean is they are dishonest either about, uh, and I talk about these levels in my book, what's going on in what I call the community, you know, how society is changing, how consumer trends are shifting, uh, how the zeitgeist is moving or they're dishonest about what the others around them are thinking and feeling and knowing, either the insights of their fellow executives that they won't listen to, or how they're, what their customers are saying about their products and services that they refuse to believe. Uh, and then finally, they, they, they're fundamentally dishonest with and about themselves, you know, with their own biases and self-limiting beliefs as leaders. And um, what I hope and what I've kind of transitioned to, I mean, you know, we still, you know, work at, at GEM, my agency, but I'm also with this book hoping to come up a level so that we're not inheriting someone's idea of marketing where what they really need is a boardroom readjustment, you know, a chiropractic, yeah. honest alignment um, into what's true about their business. Because it was, it, it was just frustrating to not be able to work at the level that really mattered, you know, helping these executives understand that they're full of shit and that's actually what's preventing them from moving forward. Now, as you can imagine, some are going to be more receptive than that to others. But yeah. just to give you, you know, a wild example, I never would have believed these things if I saw them. I can't tell you how many times a customer insisted on a marketing program that served themselves, the, the CEO, the leader, whoever the decision maker was, even if they had zero to do with their target market. I mean, we would get in conversations that are like, I like... I think we should have this kind of messaging in our 
and our you know AdWords and our display ads and our Facebook ads. Okay, that's great, but your customers already said like they don't care about any of those things. So if you want to talk about those things, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about those things. Okay, yeah. uh, or hey, we should do billboards. I don't think that's a good idea. Your target market's not driving on the highways. I don't care about billboards. No, 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 we should do it. Okay, that's a $7,000 ad placement. Can you tell <laughs> us why? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I think it's a good idea. And I, I want this one here on, on that highway. Why there? That's nowhere near your, you know, where your target market would be going. Yeah, well, it's halfway between my house and work and I like to see it. Okay, fine. If we're going to spend $7,000 a month on your ego, that's totally cool. But let's not delude ourselves about what this is, right? Yeah. And by the way, when this fails, which it will, don't blame us. Guess what, Santiago? They blamed us every time for their own <laughs> ego and bias, right? Sure. And it pissed me off. So, you know, that's why uh, I wrote a book about it. And actually, I didn't, you know, great thing about being the honesty guys, I get to be honest, right? Sure. Never set out, honestly, to write about, speak about, or frankly, even care about honesty. This is a shock to, uh, you know, teenage to mid-20s Peter, who is likely most, uh, most likely voted to continue being an asshole through his life. And for me to talk about honesty and transparency and humility and the removal of ego should be shocking to anybody who knew younger me. Um, but what I figured out is that it works. And I originally set out to write a marketing book uh, because of all the frustrations I experienced. It was actually my literary agent who, you know, as soon as he signed me, he turned around and was like, Oh, Hey Peter, you know, by the way, this isn't a book about marketing. It's a book about honesty. And I said, well, Clearly, you can't read because it says right on the front cover, it's a book about marketing. So I don't know like what to tell you. And, you know, of course, as I took it home and I was flipping through it, I was like, damn, he's absolutely right. This is much bigger. This is about how honesty invades uh, and dishonesty invades us as a society. You know, we see that with the pandemic, racism, gender discrimination, all the shit going on right now. Um, you know, we see it in how we lie to ourselves, not intentionally. But, uh, you know, about what it takes to achieve what we want, who we really are, what we even want to achieve, what it takes to get there. You know, all these, these ways that honesty comes into our lives and, and businesses, it affects us as leaders, leaders of our own personal lives or leaders of our organizations and ultimately does affect the results we achieve, whether that's our bottom line, you know, in terms of monetary you know, bottom line or our happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I think of the phrase like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Indeed. How how do you get the horse to drink? Because <laughs> yeah. you can you can berate these people with all these honesties and everything, but yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I do in my book is I, I make the case over and over and over again. And I have some fantastic interviews and case studies from Quicken Loans to Domino's Pizza to Bridgewater Associates to the Rich Carlton to all these organizations that have used honesty as a strategy to make shit tons of money. This is not an ethics book, by the way. This is a book about using honesty, wielding it like a tool in your toolkit to make money. I'm a capitalist, right? MBA. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, really, I want people to understand this is about achieving outcomes. But to your point, a conversation I've had a couple of times is like, well, isn't this sort of like selection bias? Because folks who are more likely to be open-minded and willing to admit fault and ready for change all the ways I define honesty in the book, are going to be the ones who are more likely to read it. And the folks who think they have it all figured out, who are overrun by ego, who swear up and down they're self-aware, even though that's a, usually a symbol that they're the least self-aware in the room, they're not going to pick up a book about honesty because they already think they're honest. And that, that would be a very correct assumption to make. You know, the folks who should read this probably won't. 
Um, and my hope, because I, I, I stratify the book into layers, and I have a chapter just for entrepreneurs, just for leaders of big companies, also just for middle managers and frontline employees, because my hope is that someone in an organization picks it up and says, hey, there's real, there's real strategy here, there's real, real tactics, we can do this. And we can make more money because everyone wants to make more money, right? Except for maybe like the monks in the Himalayas. But this <laughs> this podcast is probably not for that, right? So, you know, when it, it, that's why it's a business book. Is it? There's a reason to to use these strategies, and I show you how to use them in the book. Um, and you know, the reason why I think it's extremely important, uh, and I was I was really intent on creating chapters for middle managers and frontline employees, is because particularly frontline employees, they know the truth. They are the ones who actually know what's going on. They know what the customers are really saying. Nine times out of 10, Santiago, they have all the answers that the executives need. It's just that the executives don't ask them. And even when they do ask them, they shovel it under the rug and they don't do anything about it. It, Listen, I went into, so we've done a ton of focus groups and interviews for clients. One time we got hired by an organization. They're like, yeah, come in. We want everyone to get on the same page. We want to know what our frontline people are thinking. We need to solve this big problem, right? The, the one thing they do is provide this, this one system to clients and the system produces a benefit the clients love. They have a ton of clients and they want it to be better, right? Great, right? Awesome. So we're in, I'm doing this, uh, this focus group with like 20 of their people. Inside of 90 minutes, we had a fantastic plan put together. They knew what to do. They had already researched it. They knew how to upgrade the system. They knew what the clients wanted, like done, right? I was like, no, oh, this is perfect. You did all my work for me. Fantastic. Take it back to the executives. And what do you think they say? Don't like it. <laughs> oh gosh, this oh, seems really expensive, Peter. I don't know. And you know, I see that our, our people are saying that, but I don't really believe that. And that, yeah, you're right. <laughs> they just got in a room and lied for what reason again? So, you know, here they are paying us money to bring them a solution. We brought them a solution. They still didn't want to believe it. So, right. and, and, you know, in the meeting, by the way, they, they, uh, the, the frontline employees did say at one point, you know, Peter, you know, this is great. And I'm happy they're, they're asking our opinion, but I have a feeling they're going to ask and then not do anything about it. Mm. And all I could think to myself is, wow, what a trust eroding exercise that is. Sure. Ask you for your opinion and then do absolutely nothing. That's even worse. You yeah. may as well just tell them, hey, you know, please just shut up and do your job. I actually don't care about your opinion. I just want to make sure we're on the same page and transparent about that. That would actually be better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so then you you talk about luck and the well, I guess I'm trying to formulate the sentence backwards. <laughs> How do you help people break through barriers and systems, bureaucracies and the like uh, that are kind of always there and it's, I, I don't know if some of it is luck or if it's some of it is just navigating the, the systems. Yeah. So there are definite ways to gain traction and it changes depending on who you are. If you're a, if you're a leader of an organization, you can just come right out and say, Hey folks, um, I think I've probably been a lying sack of shit in some way or another, and I'm sorry. And um, I want this organization to be better. I want to be better. I want to be better for you. So here's what we're going to do. And I outline things in my book, like, you know, create a culture code, you know, and not for the sake of culture, but for the sake of transparency. Sure. You you look at a company like Quicken Loans, they have what are called isms. uh, And it's a, it's basically a culture code. You know, this is how we act and this is what we believe. They have isms like say yes before no. Or it's not about who is right, it's about what is right. 
So when I first started investigating Quicken, what I wanted to know is how did they ever come up with Rocket Mortgage mm-hmm. when they were competing against much bigger publicly traded mortgage providers like Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all stuff. They create Rocket Mortgage, steal the whole market, number one mortgage provider, right? Mm-hmm. As I investigated and I talked to their, their uh, CEO, Jay Farner, as he, they were talking and introducing me to the isms and the types of things they believe, it, I ended up saying to myself, you know, the question really is, how could they not have invented Rocket Mortgage? It was always going to be them. Because when someone, you know, first of all, when someone was like, hey, guys, um, you know, we all have a smartphone. And why don't we just like get mortgages through the phone? Because killing a tree every time we want to get a mortgage is kind of stupid. Like, it probably is a better way. And because of Quicken, you know, Quicken doesn't have gatekeepers. Their managers are, well, we say yes before no. Um, and that seems like a good idea. Could work. Why don't you go do it and let me know how it goes? That's their attitude. I call it the executive mirror. You know, it's the new role that executives must play in organizations, which is that they just take in information from the front line to the managers up to the executives, ask themselves, does this fit with our overall strategy with what we're trying to do? I mean, in Quicken's case, does this help people get mortgages? Yes. And in that case, their, their job is to just be a mirror, to reflect it back out and say, great, let's go try it. See how that works. Yeah. Right? And every organization would say, we want to be entrepreneurial, but then they put all these gatekeepers in the way of doing mm-hmm. exactly that. Entrepreneurial is, yeah, well, we say yes for no, because we don't know. We have no idea if people want to get mortgages through their phone. So let's go test it and find out. And they did, yeah. and rest is history, right? Yeah. So it, to circle back, you know, if you're a top-down leader, you can institute rules like that. And by the way, stick to them, because when you don't, you create mistrust, right? Uh, that's the worst. You know, we see our core, oh gosh, I've worked in so many companies. Oh, there are our core values. Yeah, our core values are awesome. Um, this core value is that you move fast, but that employee had a great idea five weeks ago and, and it sat on the desk. So how fast do you move? Um, and I hate that, you know, and everyone knows, everyone knows the truth, right? That's what we have to remember. We live in a very transparent society. We, we know things. Um, we can look them up. People can use my Google password, Google all day long, <laughs> right? Um, now, if you're, uh, say, a middle manager or frontline employee, it, there's a whole different tact that you want to take, right? One of the things I encourage is to, to find a scapegoat. You know, honestly, bringing me in to blame me is a fantastic way to <laughs> remove risk from yourself. Just think about it and be like, oh, well, I didn't, oh gosh, I didn't say any of those things. I mean, honesty might work for our organization. I don't know, but this guy, Peter says it will. And, you know, he came in made that speech and I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe he sucks or maybe not, but why don't we try it? Cause it'll be his fault. Right. Cause in a, especially in a big company, it's all about protectionism. You know, as my business partner says, most folks in companies are, uh, are not playing to win. They're playing to not lose. By the way, in my opinion, what a shitty way to live. Um, I think I'd rather die. So um, my point is there, there are things like, hey, bring in a scapegoat, point to them, right? Take the risk off yourself so you don't lose your job. Secondly, build a coalition. Build a cross-departmental group of folks who recognize that the organization could really use a lot more honesty you know, about what's going on in the world, what's going on with the customers, vendors, suppliers, 
fellow peers um, and what's going on with themselves as an organization and uh, get together to do some really good brainstorming activities, you know, so do some exploration, create some surveys. I have a whole workshop that I run um, as part of my book. And I actually give you all the workshop questions at uh, petercosadoy.com. Um, if you opt in for the 21 question honesty quiz, it's totally free and you get the workbook guide and you can follow along with your team. Another thing is get data. So with Buffett's institutional imperative, one of the things he found was that CEOs love to do this really weird thing. How am I going to innovate and beat the competition? Ooh, I know. Let's see what the competition's doing and just do that. It, this boggles <laughs> my mind, and I've seen it over and over and over again, right? This sort of odd copycat syndrome. Now, the good thing is, if you're a smart frontline employee who wants to use strategic honesty to make a name for themselves and to help their organization, they can actually use that copycat uh, inclination against the CEO by pointing to organizations and lists like the Just 100. Uh, Just Capital puts out a list showing, you know, here are the most honest, uh, they call them just companies, according to, you know, workers' rights and ESG and environmental mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Um, and by the way, they earn an average of, I think it's six or 8% higher return on equity than their peers who don't use those strategies. So you can use data to make a business case, or you can use any of the case studies in my book to show how like using strategic honesty works and then ask the question, hey, if it worked for all of them, maybe we're missing something here, a way to make you more money, Mrs. or Mr. Executive. So you know, using data is really important. If they can see it in a chart and it aligns with what they're trying to do and with the bottom line, again, it becomes harder to ignore. And, you know, as one of the CEOs in my book says, if you bring a, a coalition of people together who agree that, you know, great change and innovation is the right way to go and they bring data and the leader still wants to ignore you, it may be time to go to monster.com and switch jobs, you know, or not. But, you know, that's a, who wants to work in that environment, spend their days like that? I don't know. Don't ask me. I've never, you know, I haven't worked for someone since I was 22. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. Um, kind of more about you, but what's something that people don't normally know about you? Um, I'm so, I'm so brutally hard on myself. Um, I coach and mentor a lot of entrepreneurs now and they're always surprised. I guess I put on a good face. Um, but they're always surprised to hear how hard on myself I am, the level of expectation I have for my own achievement. Um, so, I mean, gosh, Santiago, I mean, there are days when I wake up and I'm, I, I dread facing the day, you know, even with all the stuff I've done, just kind of knowing, the, the big hill I still have yet to climb. So, um, you know, one of the things that I hope all entrepreneurs recognize is that two things. One, business success does not equal personal success or happiness. Those two things are, are not related and should not be related because it's a recipe for disaster. And two, uh, if you're in the Rocky Mountains and you climb one mountain, what do you see? <laughs> Everything else, I guess. <laughs> more, more mountains, right? Oh, sure, yeah. You know, there's always... <laughs> another one over the horizon. So it's not mm -hmm. like they, uh, they go away. You know, so often I find entrepreneurs I start to work with are like, if I can just get to, you know, 700,000 in sales or 1.5 in sales. And I'm like, great, by the way, once you do that, you're going to have some of these same problems. You're going to have more new problems. You're going to like, so let's, let's dissociate where you're trying to go in business from, Oh, once I get there, I will be fill in the blank, happy, successful, whatever. Like th those, that's not true. That's not honest. Um, so yeah, I've had to learn that the hard way. Yeah. Um, 
you kind of answered this one anyways, but uh, what advice do you have for people starting out uh, entrepreneurs, business uh, leaders, whatever? Get help. Don't try to do it alone. I mean, I've wasted years and millions of dollars and I should have gotten help so early in the process because people would have told me like I had to learn, oh, we're only going to get so far as a video production company. We need to be a full service agency. Then I realized, oh, full service agencies, that's not a particularly sellable business. They don't get a big multiple when they sell. Nobody told me that when I was in my 20s, right? So I could have, I could have spent all that time building like a marketing tech company and I'd be a lot more wealthy now. But I didn't have that that guidance because I didn't ask because I was too stupid to ask, right? Too big of an ego. So get a mentor. Uh, Oh my gosh. I mean, and what's, again, you know, I don't know, Santiago, if you had said to 25-year-old Peter, hey, spend $10,000 with this person so they can help you build the right kind of business. I probably wouldn't have done it because I was Mm -hmm. too stupid and too egotistical. Um, Probably been like, oh, that's a lot of money. By the way, they would have saved me literally millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars and a lot of headaches and heartaches. So that's something I've had to learn the hard way. Do not go it alone. That's just silly. You don't have to do it. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, Switching gears and there's no good way to transition into it. What is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I I grew up celebrating everything with presence, which is, I think, a wonderful way to to grow up if you like presence, which I I do. You know, everyone likes a good gift. Um, I was bar mitzvahed, you know, I, I ended up at, at Brandeis, not terribly religious. And I have some issues with structured religion. I actually write about in my book, um, Ancient Egypt, and what the Amun priests uh, did early on. I'll tell you that story in a moment. And then of what uh, the Catholic Church did in Rome and, you know, the early Renaissance. And there's so many instances, I think, of structured religion taking advantage of people uh, taking advantage of people's fears, you know, that, that yeah. I have some reservations about that. Um, so I'll tell you a quick story and then, and then we'll get sure. into how I've kind of solved that spirituality wise. But, you know, imagine uh, you're in ancient Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. You come out of the market and you're momentarily blinded by the hot desert sun and you, you trip and go ass over tea kettle down these stone steps and you crack your noggin open at the bottom, Right. Upon death, you would instantly be transported to the Hall of Two Truths. Have you, mm-hmm. Do you know this? I don't. Okay. Ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian mythology. And in the Hall of Two Truths, there would be a scale. Now, one end of the scale would be your heart and your live, like, beating cardiac organ. Mm-hmm. And on the other end would be the feather of Ma'at, the feather of truth, who's the goddess of, of truth. And the idea would be you don't want the heart to uh, weigh to be heavier than the feather. You want that to be in balance. And that was a symbol that you had led a good life, you know, that you were a respectable, honorable person, treated others well, and so on and so forth. And if it balanced, you'd be uh, entered into the afterlife, which in uh, for ancient Egypt was a really big deal. And uh, if it didn't, if your heart was heavier than the feather, then uh, your heart would be devoured by the part crocodile god Amit, and then you would uh, cease to exist and no afterlife for you. So this seems, you know, and we have a lot of these stories about, you know, spirituality and religion, trying to keep society in check and behave like, you know, good citizens, right? Which is wonderful, except that uh, the Amun priests got wise to this, and they started to say to some wealthy patrons, hey, look, you know, why take the risk? 
we have these scrolls here that we can, you know, just sort of fill out your name, these incantations that'll help you skip the lines, kind of like a Disney fast pass for the afterlife. <laughs> you just, you know, give us a couple shekels, then we'll give you the scroll and you can be on your way. And so that, the reason why that moment's important for, for the story of honesty is because that, those moments are the ones in which we've perverted money and morality. We've confused the two, given people an out saying, you can do anything you want to accumulate wealth, and then you can make up for it later. And mm-hmm. religion after religion, culture after culture has done this. I think that's getting harder now for a couple of different reasons. One, a lot more science, a lot more structured religion and, and belief in, you know, mass belief in the afterlife, right? Maybe I'm wrong, but particularly among the millennial generation, it seems like that's sort of fallen by the wayside. The other is we know too much. You know, we we know what structured religion looks like and what it does. And, you know, think about, you know, all the, the crises the Catholic Church has been through as a, for instance, but they're, you know, none of the other religions are immune. I'm not picking on them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we've kind of gotten wise to like, oh, you know, people can take advantage of us for money. And and by the way, now we know that because everyone takes to Facebook and talks about it and it's on the news and it's everywhere in the world, right? <laughs> There's so much transparency. And that's the main premise of the book is that like in a culture that we now live in, that is a newly transparent society where everyone's walking around with a smartphone, where everything's being recorded somewhere, um, it's not going to pay going forward to do anything but be honest and transparent, um, and we're already starting to see that with all the corporate scandals that are coming to light and the sh- and folks saying, well, screw them, I'm not going to spend my money with them. You know, if they're going to behave like that, that's going to happen more and more. So how I've solved that in my own life, Santiago, is by diving deeply into personal development and into my core values. And I've gotten, you know, particularly after my own crisis of honesty at 30, um, I've gotten myself into really good situations that I've been able to explore, you know, what are my, my real values? I talk about in the book, creating a values hierarchy, not just the values that represent you and that you really believe, but in what order they are. You may be surprised to hear that honesty is on my values hierarchy, but it's actually not anywhere near the top values. There are values I hold even more than honesty, like service to others uh, and enlightenment, which is like my, my top value, which is this idea of being in complete control over what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, how I'm reacting. Um, and that comes from getting deeply honest with myself, you know, about what my triggers are, getting deeply honest with myself about where I allow my logical brain to take over versus my emotional brain, um, getting myself out of environments, out of relationships, out of, you know, situations in which I don't react or act in an enlightened way as I've, I've sort of defined that. And that's how I've allowed you know, a measure of spirituality to enter into where I am. And of course, one of my top values being service, you know, to others, um, that of course plays into what I consider to be my, my spirituality as well. You know, I'm always looking to ensure others are comfortable. Others are validated. Um, those have been things I've needed to learn. I didn't give a shit about people's feelings or validating what they (laughs) thought. I was too busy telling everyone that they were a dumbass and what they said made no sense. Whether that's true or not, and usually it is, I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> I've learned that that's, that doesn't matter, right? What's important to people is that I leave a conversation and they've said, wow, you know, I feel better about myself after talking to Peter. That's become my new sort of marker of uh, interpersonal success, if you will. Right. I had to learn that the hard, the hard way. Yeah. 
that's a beautiful thing. And uh, I kind of have a, a similar thing too. And it, it's, it's nice to, to hear that someone else kind of has put it together like that too. Um, so addition to that, and regardless of if you believe in God, what is your definition of God? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I've actually been, gosh, I'm such a geek. I've been watching um, PBS lately, their Nova program because I am, I am that cool. I grew up with like seven TV channels. Um, my parents would not get cable. And at the time I loathed them for it. And now I'm so grateful because what did I watch? PBS yeah. <laughs> at like seven. I was like, Oh, frontline. This is great. Oh, wow. I'm learning all about the biopharma company. Like industry. This is <laughs> yeah. fantastic, right? And like, it made me really smart. So that was, that's, you know, I knew a lot about it, a lot of, a lot about a lot. Um, so, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, right. God. So I'm watching this Nova program the other day about Einstein's theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. And I never knew this, but if you take an object and accelerate it to the speed of light, then time slows or speeds up depending on, uh, you know, whether you're the observer and standing still or you're the person at speed of light passing, whatever. I knew that part. But what I didn't know was that if you take an object and move it at speed of light away from you or towards you, their moment in time, their now, and your moment of time actually becomes dissociated. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if Santiago's in a rocket ship moving really, really fast away from me, and I don't remember if it's away for one and towards for the other, so I'm going to get them confused, but let's, let's say it this way. And you're moving away from me, if you and I uh, pick an instant and think of the same thing as at an instant, we're actually not in the same time. Yeah. You, your now is my, could be five years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, depending on how fast you're moving. Cause you're, you're slicing through the space time continuum in such a way that you've, you've skewed the literally the space time fabric. You with yeah. me so far? Yeah. And in addition you are, if you ride towards me, again, I probably messed that up, but let's say it's towards me, you're actually slicing into my future. You know, your mm -hmm. now is my future now, right? So if your brain isn't hurting already, you know, for those of you listening <laughs> out there, um, I had to rewind and watch that segment like four times to like finally like get like what they were talking about. And so if you believe in physics, this is what the math says, right? It's not yeah. like, you know, theoretical, it's like, this is what the math says, that yeah. these things should be true. And so in that kind of situation, time is not like a river, a flowing river. It's like a frozen river mm. where at any point in time, we sort of already know what history looks like and what the future looks like, which means there has to be a future and we already know what it is. It's talk about, you know, destiny and fate, which by the way, I'm, I wasn't a huge proponent of, except I wrote, you know, because again, I'm so cool, wrote uh, an article in my high school paper one time. I've never told this story, by the way. <laughs> about, uh, because I, we were, I was taking an advanced physics class, about the fact that if you take a human brain and you break it into its atoms, it, they're all physical processes, right? Like a, a synaptic electric firing, that's a physical process. A, a chemical uh, process between brain cells, that's a physical process. Yeah. And we know how physical processes go. Like we can predict if you roll a bowling ball in one direction with a, this kind of a slope and those kinds of atmospheric weather conditions, we know what's going to happen, right? So if you apply that logic to us humans, 
we also should know what's going to occur. All of those physical properties that are literally rolling downhill should in some way, shape, or form be predestined. You follow? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me, you know, what's God? I have no idea. But what I do increasingly believe is that, you know, kind of tie this back to luck, right? There are a lot of things that just flow through life that I think we struggle to understand and we assign emotion to and we try to control in ways that I I think we, and I especially, I'll speak for myself, would do a lot better to just smile and look around and enjoy and be thankful and grateful and not worry so much. Mm-hmm. Because there's so, even if everything I said about physics isn't true, we can't control most of it anyway. That yeah. we can probably agree on. So, exactly. um, you know, is that God or not? I have no idea. But, uh, you know, I have to say one of my favorite shows is Westworld on HBO. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watch Westworld. Yeah. Um, because it is the great existentialist tale of our time and really grapples with like, what is what is humanity and what is it to be alive and here and now? And how do you even define that? And those types of issues just fascinate me. And the reason I love them, Santiago, is because if, if I, I believe if more people spent more time thinking about that stuff, looking up at the stars, understanding that we're this, you know, pale blue dot in the middle of a vast galaxy we don't understand, they'd probably uh, be able to let go of a lot of the emotions they're feeling about their aunt's Facebook post or the president's <laughs> tweet that really don't fucking matter. You know what I yeah. mean? I think we need a lot more perspective in this country and in this world. Definitely. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that paper that you wrote in high school uh because my next question is is free will an illusion how is it or is it not i don't know i'm still trying to um i I think about that you know it's a great question i think it's probably i think it's probably an illusion Mm -hmm. i think it probably is and the the fun part about that that i love thinking about is there's no way to prove it because as soon as you (laughs) think i have free will then you can also think was I always going to think I have free will in that moment of time and that space? You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, I love little mind fucks like that. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, no, definitely. Uh, how do you determine what good behavior is? Oh, gosh. It's changed so much for me now, you know, going back to like the empathy I've had to develop. I think good behavior is empathy. Yeah. I just did. Um, so as part of my book launch, I picked 50 people that I really respected and I put together a little package for them. There was a, an advanced copy of my book um, and then a, a, a wine bottle planter that was recycled, that was engraved with their name that you could like put together and then and put uh, you know flowers in it and it would become a planter. Um, really nice. And I wrote them a letter and it's printed on seed paper. So you can like cut the paper up, plant it and grows into wildflowers. Like yeah. very thoughtfully done. And just saying to them, hey, you know, you've been an inspiration to me and, and thank you for everything. And I, you know, I, I'm reaching out because honestly, I need your help. You know, I have no right to ask, but I really want, uh, I want and need help with this book. It's, it's really important to me. It's about honesty. I know you value honesty. Um, so, you know, I hope you, you accept this book and, and at least, you know, consider helping me. I can't tell you how many, you know, so folks did get back and they're like, oh, wow, Peter, this is amazing. Thank you so much for thinking of me. This is wonderful. Other folks, month went by followed mm. up. Hey, did you, did you get that? Did you, know, did you receive it? Just let me know you received it. Yeah. Yeah. I received it. Gosh, just, um, you know, thanks. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, I have no, listen, I reached out to them cold. 
I have no right to be upset that they, that they weren't, you know, more excited about it. That's fine. But empathy, right? I mean, if someone mm. had taken the time to mail me a box with a gift and a book and a cry for help, I would at least call them or email them say, Hey, I got this super thoughtful. I'll put it on my shelf. Can't promise I'll read it right now, but it looks really awesome. And you know, if there's a way I find I can help you in the future, I will consider it. Right. Sure. Just nice. Right. You yeah. know, nice, thoughtful, empathetic. And I was really disappointed. Um, and again, I have no right to be disappointed. I know that, you know, but no right. But, but I did feel disappointed that, um, that they didn't have the empathy to take three seconds for the, the hours and hours of labor and thoughtfulness it took me, they couldn't take 60 seconds to write me an email. You know what I mean? Sure. So that comes down to values, right? You know, what, what did I tell you? My highest value is service. You know, one of my highest is service to others. So I would, that would have crossed my mind. Whereas maybe their value isn't service to others, even though many of them say it's service to others. Um, but again, you know, back to self-honesty, there's what we say and the, what we put out on Instagram and there's how we actually act. So sure. yeah, it was a little disappointing to me, but again, again, Self-honesty, right? I have no right to be disappointed, but I was. Sure. Yeah. How do uh, how do we reduce the division? Oh, gosh. Santiago, <laughs> do we book eight hours? We have all that time to talk about? <laughs> I intentionally ask dense questions because the story is more important than the answer. Well, this is an important question to me because what we're seeing in our society and culture right now in the United States is really disgusting. I mean, I am just blown away by the amount of ego, bias, and ignorance that my fellow Americans have adopted in recent years. Um, and, you know, folks sometimes love to blame social media. Listen, I hate social media too, but that's a t- don't blame the technology for the psychology. You know, and that's what's pissing me off about, you know, right now folks are blaming Facebook because they're not doing enough to fact check, you know, the president's posts and they're allowing groups and stuff like that. It's like, I wish people would just take a moment and ask themselves, do we really want a corporation with a profit (laughs) motive to be the ones deciding what's true and what's not and what we see? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. And then what are we going to do? We're going to stop these groups from marketing. When they're marketing on Facebook, we can all see what they're doing. We mm-hmm. can have an open conversation about it. There's transparency. When we kick them off, what are they going to do? They're going to go underground where we can't see them, where they're going to cause more damage that we can't address and have an open conversation about it. Right. People think, you know, think about what you're asking for. And, and what's shocking me is all these big brands that are jumping on this bandwagon to boycott them. I, I think, honestly, Santiago, there's more to do with getting good PR and looking good than being thoughtful about it. Um, but I wish one brave one would think through this. And, um, and I think, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg has, and I think that's why he's saying like, listen, this, this isn't a good idea. You know, I, I don't think it's laziness or that he doesn't care about society. I, I think he recognizes some of the things that I've said. Now, maybe that's not true. Marky Mark, if you're listening to this, you know, give me a call and you can tell me otherwise. <laughs> um, but I certainly hope that's, that's the case. Um, so, you know, back to division in our society, um, let's not blame the technology for the psychology. And as far as the psychology goes, somehow we've turned into a nation of rugged individualists. I mean, this whole thing about like, I don't have to wear a mask. You can't tell me to wear a mask. It's like, just shut up and put the mask on. I mean, <laughs> listen, and I don't want to wear it either, you know? And there are certain situations, I mean, look, I went out to eat at a restaurant the other day. There are a bunch of people sitting down with no masks, right? 
we're, by the way, for anyone listening, we're in like July of 2020. So like right in the middle of the shit. Sure, sure. So people sitting down at restaurant outside, no masks. Sign at the door says, uh, hey, you know, you got to put a mask on to be seated. So we have to put a mask on to walk to the table so we could take it off and be the same distance from everyone else who already has the mask off. Like there's so many things like that that don't make sense that I think that's where people are getting like, well, this doesn't make any sense, so I'm not doing it. So fine, I don't want to do it either. But on the other hand, somewhere along the line, we lost touch of of we. And I, I actually, you know, I partly blame the rugged individualists who have taken that tact, but but I actually don't think it's their fault. And I think it's the fault of uh, the public and private sector that has routinely, over many decades and even centuries, uh, screwed the public over, screwed their employees over, screwed their suppliers, their vendors, their taxpayers. There are so many things that, that the government has done, make no sense, serve no people, you know, enrich corporations, blah, 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 on and on, right? I'm, I'm not a political guy, so it's, I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently about it. I will admit that. But I can say there have been plenty of historical, you know, remember I watched PBS as a kid, plenty of historical, uh, you know, situations in which the, the leaders, public, private sector, whatever, didn't take care of the people. And now I think we're seeing those uh, chickens come home to roost where we're asking people, hey, we're in a crisis here. Will you help? And they're like, no, no, we <laughs> won't. Because we don't know if you're telling us the truth or not. You know, we don't know what your agenda is. We don't trust you. And when you have dishonesty and a lack of transparency, you have distrust. And when you have distrust, you cannot take unified action as a, as a community. Now, <laughs> there's a failure on a couple different sides here. One is our leaders from the beginning should have been much more transparent about what was going on. Like, hey, there's this virus. We don't know anything about it yet. As we know, you will know. But these are the steps we all need you to take. We know it sucks. We're going to try our best here and here's the strategy and here's the plan. We're all going to do it together. Like that would have been great. Yeah. Right. But as you, you and I both know, it wasn't that it was mayhem and it was governors running off in different directions and it was rugged individualism. Right. So failure on that end. Failure on the other end is folks taking that as a hall pass. Well, you all don't know what's going on. So I'm just going to ignore everything and go party in Lake of the Ozarks. Right. Mm -hmm. Also probably not a good idea. Um, and I, I wish folks had a lot more of we thinking. Because if we, if we thought like we, then we wouldn't have things like, you know, massive racial discrimination and gender bias and all these things that don't create a culture, a peaceful society. Mm -hmm. We know that. Um, so everything that someone does that feeds into one of those terrible, you know, things we have going on in society, they know in the back of their minds, unless they're complete morons, which I don't think they are, that the actions they're taking are harmful to the group. Mm -hmm. And so we can only then ask, what are their justifications, right? Somewhere in their minds, they have figured out a way to justify their beliefs and their actions. And the question is, how do we shake those people? There mm -hmm. was a wonderful story several years ago of a man who uh, was like outwardly racist, like former underground KKK member, the whole nine yards. He was forced through some mechanism, I don't remember what it was, to have to confront uh, a black neighbor face to face in a very intimate setting, you know, something like they were both hospitalized in the same room, something like that. Mm -hmm. And through discovering the humans behind each other, 
they formed an incredible bond and an incredible friendship. It took that transformative and very human experience to bring these people together and to help them understand, uh, particularly, you know, this former KKK member, understand where he had gone wrong. Now, as I'm telling this story, Santiago, this probably makes sense to you, right? So yeah, that's Mm -hmm. how people get to know each other and get over their whatever bullshit's going on in their head, right? It makes them hate other people. Who has time to hate? Who has time to hate other people? That's what I want to know. <laughs> who has the time to be discriminatory against? I just don't get it. Um, anyway, now we know that. Now look at like uh, the protests going on for Black Lives Matter. Okay. Now, the risk of sounding controversial. Let's ask ourselves: Do those protests work? Well, what have they done? They've created uh, news coverage that doesn't stop. They've created dangerous situations for the coronavirus. They've created uh, lots of police officers and National Guards people uh, having to stay up all night and work all day and put themselves in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I hope, I really do hope, Santiago, that those protests create change. But something else that they're doing is um, making a lot of people not pissed off, but just sort of sick and tired of it, right? It's like, yeah. Causing a traffic jam on the highway. Like, please get off the highway. I have a life to live. And I don't think that's to say those folks are like, I don't care about this. I think it's just, it's something disruptive, right? Now, mm-hmm. on the one hand, seems like kind of a logical thing to do. I mean, somebody, we need to wake up about this. I mean, the, the murder of George Floyd, horrendous. I wrote an article on Medium about the fact that like, we, I'm not going to speak for black people. I'm not black. I have no right. But I am going to speak for white people. Say, hey, white people, wake the hell up. You know, we need, we need to do something and take action. Now, we've tried protests in the past, haven't we? You know, anyone, I didn't live through the Very 60s, often. I've seen the footage, right? We've tried this. Uh, has it worked? I don't think so. And I believe the reason it hasn't worked is because when we do something like go into a protest that turns into, you know, a rager where we smash small business doors and windows off, we miss the whole point of the story I told about the former KKK member, which is this is about humanization. If we don't humanize these issues, we will never overcome them. That's how we humans work. As soon as we assemble into a faceless mob that we can take a side on, right, whether they're effective or not, hey, look what that mob is doing. Isn't that awful? We can't see the people behind those masks. I think it's actually more damaging. What I would much rather see is some sort of forced coming together at the community level, at the local level. Uh, town by town, neighborhood by neighborhood, saying, hey, we're going to all get together and talk about this. Yeah. Because we're all neighbors here. Um, and if we don't get to the people behind these movements, then there's, we're never going to have that connectivity, that, that develop that empathy that we talked about. So for me, you know, I, I worry that some of the directions that we're taking to make change aren't being completely honest about the way people change and how they change. Um, and what it takes to change. Because listen, if protests worked, then after everything that happened in the 60s, we should look very different, shouldn't we? So what I'd hate to see is a society that continues being divided because we keep trying to do the same shit that doesn't create the change that we want to change. But Lord, do we need to change. That is clear and obvious. Beautiful. Um, I think this one's just going to have to run long. So this is fine because uh, I, I'm loving everything that you're saying. So, <laughs> um, because of, I like to start dark and then move up. So one more dark question. 
Do you believe okay. humans are evil by nature? Um, I believe so. What's funny is when I started on the book journey, somebody asked me, and this was like years ago, because it took me four years to write that stupid book, by the way. Somebody <laughs> asked me, do you believe everyone's fundamentally honest? And at the time I said, yeah, I think so. Now I know that the answer is no. People are <laughs> fundamentally dishonest, not in the way that they intend, not that they're intentionally lying to people, but in the way that they, they get caught up in the dishonesty in their own minds that they can't even see. Everything mm. we've talked about, right? Self-limiting beliefs, biases, ego. So are people inherently evil? No, I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is because nobody walks around, unless you're like some terrible, you know, criminal, rapist, whatever, right? Very few people walk around thinking, wow, what a terrible person I am and what terrible decisions I make. And what like, that, <laughs> no, most people walk around thinking, wow, what a great person I am. And I make good decisions and I, I think the right way. That's mm. why we're thinking the right, that way and making those decisions, right? Yeah. So, and you know, because if we move from that point, if we assume that's true, maybe it's not, but if we assume that's true, um, then we have to make other assumptions, which is how do you not change a person from evil to good, but change them from thinking they're right to thinking they're wrong, mm-hmm. helping them understand what's right. And of course, what's right is subjective, right? It's not an absolute scale. Um, it's the helping people understand where they may be going astray, that's the hardest part because of what we talked about earlier. The folks who think they are most right and righteous and self-aware are sadly typically the worst and the least. Um, So again, that can't happen. I have found that that can't happen without an extreme amount of vulnerability back to the get the interpersonal feelings going to get people in a room because as soon as there's vulnerability on the table, most folks recognize it and they respect it. What do we say when someone comes and says to you, listen, um, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, it turns out I'm, I'm a terrible person. I want to be better and I'm going to try to be better. And here's what I'm going to do to be better. You don't like stomp on them, you, like crush their feelings, right? You say, well, well, thank, thank you for your honesty. You know, that's yeah. I, I respect that. And in the same way, if we could learn to be vulnerable with others, you know, imagine a situation where we put uh, someone who's been subjected to racism in a room with a bunch of folks, and that person simply tells their story, you know, the emotion, say, this is what happened to me. This is the way it made me feel. This is why it made me feel less than human. This is why it made me feel what? That's, that's going to be a powerful experience, a tear-inducing right experience and a memorable one that reaches us where it matters in our amygdala, you know, where the emotions live, where our memories are tied to emotion. So we can empathize and understand. Um, so, you know, I know I've kind of come full circle on your, on your evil question, but I don't think people are, are inherently evil. I think we don't do a good enough job understanding honestly how people construct their version of themselves, how they cling to it and what it takes for them to move off of it. And I think as soon as we can be more honest about those things, I, I would hope we would change the way in which we try to make change to bring that full circle. Definitely. So then moving upwards, what makes you or what are you optimistic about for our future? So I really do believe that in a world where everyone is recording first party data, where we know what people said, right, where we can see George Floyd's murder with our own eyes, mm-hmm. it's, it is going to become why, like, ask yourself, like, when cameras are rolling, when we know what happens, what incentive is there to lie, cheat, steal, murder, 
you know, whatever. Um, I think the incentives will fall away. Not to say some bad apples will still do terrible things. I mean, those cops knew people were recording them and did it anyway. That to me, as someone who talks about honesty and transparency, is the most shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's still going to be some some bad people. Evil people, I don't know. Bad people, yes. Um, but uh, in a world where, you know, the corporate scandal is going to come out, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's story was going mm-hmm. to come out, you know, it's all going to come out. Um, I think the incentives to do anything but be honest and transparent will fall away. And that, I believe, will in turn create at least a more transparent and, and hopefully better uh, society to live in. Yeah, definitely. Um, then what makes you content? About society or about my, my life? No, or? just yourself. What, what makes you feel content? <laughs> you know what's weird? I love, like, the, one of the best feelings is just, like, making my to-do list and checking it off and knowing that, like, I did it. And moving all the yeah. pegs forward. I've always thought of my life as like a chessboard. You know, I want to make sure like all the pieces go one peg forward. I know that's not how you play chess, by the way, but <laughs> I'm mixing analogies. Um, you know, it's like I've got a businesses here and like personal stuff here and my marriage over there and my family. Like I want to move every peg forward. Just make it one click better every day, every month, every year. Um, that That's what makes me content. Know that yeah. I'm moving in the right direction. I'm learning and I'm growing and not getting caught in my own bullshit. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, when will you be satisfied? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you watched Hamilton? <laughs> um, you know the song I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, satisfied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, what advice do you have for people in general? Stop worrying. As my business partner says, worry doesn't solve anything. I've been a victim of worrying myself. There was never any reason to worry. There's no reason to worry now because it doesn't help. Uh, in fact, it hurts. You know, yeah. when we're busy worrying about what we can't control, uh, we often don't do the things we can control. Yeah, definitely. And I think if people just stop to think about that and then make the changes they can control, they would be a lot better off. Beautiful. And lastly, uh, potentially the most important, cake or pie? Both. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter, thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course. It's my pleasure. I love doing these. <laughs> Where can we find you and your things? So come have an honest conversation with me. I'm at uh, honesttogreatness.com. It's my main site. I have my fingers on a lot of pies. I have entrepreneurial ADHD. I think we talked about that. So I have a, um, a free honesty quiz you can take at honesttogreatness.com. I have a free Facebook group for aspiring writers. I'm doing live streams every Thursday, teaching how to go from how to figure out what idea you want to write about all the way up to how do you get an agent, a publisher, endorsements, the whole nine yards, come join us there. Um, I have tons of awesome programs for entrepreneurs. My favorite is Forum, uh, which is a confidential monthly meeting that we have with a group of other founders where we remove those self-limiting pieces of bullshit and get to what's really, really going on um, behind the scenes, personal business and family. That's an incredibly incredibly powerful and life-changing program. All of those things uh, you can find on my website if you actually go to petercosadoy.com slash go. I have put all those links in one place to make it a little easier for you. Beautiful. Um, Great, yeah. Uh, And I mean, there's also TED Talks and all that other stuff, which like I I enjoyed your TED Talk. Oh, that old thing. Yeah, 
<laughs> but no, yeah, it's it's been a great time, and I'm I'm happy to uh, have connected with you. So, of course, man, my uh, pleasure. Yeah, I'm Santiago Ramones, Peter Cosadoy. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background, put it on your workout playlist, show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy the thing and get bonus content to get a bit deep into the emotions you can feel with it. I also make music with Power Cycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. More to come from Power Cycle in the future. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong, 